Hey, welcome to Bridgewater. We're so glad you're here. Uh, my name is Matt, and I have the joy of being the campus pastor uh, here in Halstead. And um, we're going to have a conversation. We're going to be mature about it. And it's going to be a difficult conversation for some of us because it's going to be regarding sin, what we do in sin, what the church's response is to sin. Um, and the church, by and large, hasn't always gotten it right. And we want to try to get it right. We want to try to get it biblical, and we're going to look at that today. Um, but if you've missed the first four weeks of this series, it is incredibly important that you know where we've been uh, to know what we're going to talk about today, because we are just covering this uh, book kind of chapter by chapter uh, up until uh, we're going to stop at chapter six. We'll come back to it in the future, most likely. But uh, Paul has been talking about this church that's super messed up. Uh, this is first century Corinth. He's writing to a group of believers who have a church there that he planted that are just doing ridiculous things. But he spends the first four chapters of this book talking about disunity in the church and how dangerous it is. He just over and over and over again, 25% of the books is unity, unity, unity. He says you must be united in mind. You must have one thought. Basically, there shouldn't be this division among believers that was existing at the time. He says, because... We are all Christians because of one thing and one thing alone, and it's the cross of Jesus Christ. When at, the, at the cross, there is level ground for all believers. We've been saying this this whole series, that I'm not better than you, you are not better than me. We didn't get into heaven because of our good works, as you heard from Mariana's story. We got into heaven, or we're getting into heaven, because of Christ's perfection and his death on the cross for us. And so that ought to create some humility inside of us, that as we work and walk and talk with people who think differently, who hold different opinions than us, then we can do it graciously. And so that was what the first uh, two, or first three chapters were about. And uh, chapter four, what he's going to kind of turn and talk about, which is what we talked about last week, is that, okay, now you've come to faith in Christ. He has saved you from wherever you are. No one is too far gone. Grace is big enough for whatever your sin uh, is that he can cover that. And when that moment happens, your dead heart is brought to life and you're given new life in Jesus. Therefore, our lives ought to begin to look different after Jesus than they did before Jesus. And he talks about growing up in our spiritual walk, that at some point we need to get off the bottle is what he says and start eating milk. And what he means is not that we have to grow in knowledge, though that is very, very important, but that our lifestyle should look more like Jesus every day and less like our old selves. The problem was that wasn't happening. They were just staying young. They were staying immature. They were looking just like the world around them. And chapter five is an example of where Paul is going to have to deal with their immaturity as a church. And that's what we're going to look at today. The joy of just kind of working through a, a book of the Bible is you don't get to avoid the awkward stuff. Right? If you do a topical teaching, it's like, oh, I didn't, I didn't see 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Never saw it. Moving on, right? But um, we're going to read through it. And there's a couple things we need to talk about before we get into it. Anytime you come across a difficult passage in the Bible or something that may be hard to swallow, you have to ask the question, what does the Bible say? And that seems simple, but it's important that you don't ask, what do I want the Bible to say? What do I think the Bible says? What do I wish the Bible said? Or what did I rewrite the Bible in my own mind to say? What does it say? As it, as it is written, what does it say? And these verses are incredibly clear. They're not mysterious or, or fuzzy. They're very clear. The second question is, will we follow it? When we're confronted with truth that we don't agree with, or truth that is difficult, will we sit in a position where the word of God is the authority for the life of a believer, or will I become authority over the scriptures? 
And that is an incredibly important position to make sure you are clear on because if you are human, you will find things in here that rub up against you because we're not perfect yet. This book helps us know the way to get there. And so I have to decide and you have to decide as you come into the word of God, when I feel like something's wrong and something's not in order, I'm the one in the wrong, not the Bible. Does that make sense? That's going to be really easy to say now and then we're going to get into this and you're going to probably feel a little bit differently about it. But that's why it's important we set this precedent before we get into it. The other reason, there's three other reasons why I think this passage might be difficult for us. And um, you've probably heard this passage preached on or used if you've been around church for any length of time. And perhaps you've seen it used improperly by a leader in the past. Um, This passage can be used in a harmful and weaponized way. And that is not how we desire to use it. But it has been done, unfortunately. And I have witnessed it myself. Maybe you have witnessed it and you'll understand what I mean in a minute. The other uh, thing that's important for us, go and throw it up there is that you might not think sin is destructive. If you think we're mistakers who make mistakes and it's all good and all shucks, I messed up, let me try again, this passage is gonna seem aggressive. But if you understand sin for what it is, that is according to the word of God, sin begets death, that our sinful choices will never lead to life, they will always lead to death. If we understand the destructive nature of sin, these verses become very clear. If we wrestle with that, it will be difficult. Perhaps the biggest one that you're going to have to uh, come across and deal with today is, is this American value that is just entrenched in so many of our thinkings and even in the, in the minds of Christians that no one has the right to judge anyone, right? We hear that. That's like the American mantra right now is no one has the right to judge anyone. And it's true in some senses, but it's not true in all. It's true in some senses that I'm not called to judge a non-Christian I'm not called to be a judgmental individual. Actually, the Bible confronts us on being a judgmental individual. But the Bible is also explicitly clear that we as Christians are to judge other Christians. And I don't mean judge in the way you think, which is where this gets confusing. That's what Paul's going to unpack. But you may not know this, but the Bible tells us that Christians are going to judge angels. I don't know exactly what that means, but we're going to have a position of judgment and authority in, in the life to come. And so he basically is saying, would you start now? Would you start practicing this now? And so we can talk about this week and next week. So um, what, what's the problem? What's going on here? We're going to deal with some of this stuff. But 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, Paul begins to turn the corner from unity and begins to tell them to draw some lines. And here's what he says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Should you rather have, uh, shouldn't you have rather gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Now, it's maybe a little confusing at first. Why didn't he just say sleeping with his mom? Well, most likely what he's referring to is his stepmother. Um, he was sleeping with his stepmom. And what's interesting about this passage, he says, even the pagans don't tolerate this behavior. You know, pagans, you probably think of like an old school movie of Rome. And just, all he's referring to with pagans is non-Christians. It doesn't mean anything other than non-Christians. But what he's saying is, even non-Christians look in on this behavior and know that this behavior is wrong. It's crazy. Even they won't tolerate it. And that's saying a lot because if you know the Greco-Roman culture, Pretty much anything went. There was really no moral rules or boundaries for them. And even these incredibly morally liberal people said, whoa, 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 we draw the line somewhere and that line is it. That's a no-go. And Paul is furious because he's looking in and he's 
mad, not just because of the sin. He's mad of their response to the sin, which is, and you're proud of it. So the church at Corinth is over here saying, hey, we got this guy sleeping with his stepmom, and it's awesome because we're free, and this is woohoo. And Paul's like, Are you, really? You see, they were celebrating their tolerance. The problem was they were celebrating what God had called sin. There were Christians who claimed to know the way of Jesus, but not only were they not living the way of Jesus, they were celebrating the way that stands in opposition to Jesus. They were celebrating what God has called destruction and death. And that's where Paul begins to draw the problem with them, saying, listen, you're supposed to be walking in holiness because our God is holy, and yet you're cheering this guy on that the whole community knows is wrong. See, but the thing here is you need to understand that Paul is not getting after the guy necessarily for the act, though that is a problem. The real problem that was happening in Corinth was this. Struggling with sin, this is our first point for us this morning. Struggling with or struggling against sin isn't the problem, but defending sin is the problem. The reality is as long as you are human, you will struggle against sin. Until you get to go be with Jesus, you will have to wrestle against the, the sin nature inside of you. That is not the problem. There is a provision within the gospel that we would wrestle against. It. The problem is when we stop fighting and we just surrender. Say, ah, this is awesome. Isn't it great that we have freedom to just do whatever we want? Paul, Paul says, no, no, no. You have to continue to fight against it. And here's, here's the thing, though. It's not just struggling against it that's not necessarily the problem. And this may sound weird to come from your pastor. It's not even failing with sin that's the problem. It, that's not even the problem. Why? Because of what 1 John says, 1 John 1, 9. Let's go and throw it up there. If we confess our sins, confessing our sins implies that I previously sinned. So I, I failed. I've made a mistake. Okay, well then what? He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. What? If we confess, if we don't defend, if we don't uh, deny, if we openly say, here's where I screwed up. And forgiveness. God's grace has covered that. Verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. You see, it is entirely based on our response to our own sin. He says, if you deny it, it means something really damaging for your life and it means you may not be a Christian. You may not know Jesus if you're defending and denying sin. That's the extreme to which this goes. And that's where Paul's gonna take uh, this, uh, this chapter. Now you may be sitting here and if you've heard the first four weeks, you go, I thought this was a series on church unity. <laughs> it is. See, sometimes for the unity of the church, you have to deal with the problems of the church. Sometimes you have to deal with the things that are going to cause disunity down the road. Now, they had a false sense of unity around this, tol this tolerance, but it wasn't real unity because it wasn't based on the gospel. It was based on something else. So we've been called to make some divisions in life and as Christians, and those divisions are as follows. There's two areas that we've been given commands. The first one is this. We, we divide over clear doctrine. We talked about this at length in week one, but if somebody claims to be a Christian yet denies Jesus as the Lord and Savior, denies his sufficiency of the atonement for, his sin, for our sins, denies you know, some of the fundamental, elemental, or fundamental pieces of the gospel and they claim to be a Christian, the Bible would say don't associate with them. Why? Because they're claiming Jesus 
yet they're denying Jesus. And if you walk into a room with unbelievers and they say, you're a Christian and you're a Christian, but you believe in Jesus and you kind of do and you kind of don't, you see how confusing that is for the world around? And Paul says, so, so don't associate with people who claim to be Christians yet totally deny salvation by Christ through faith alone. Now, he's not talking about non-Christians who don't believe that. He's talking about Christians or people who claim to be Christians. Does that make sense? The second thing is that we divide over clear commands. Paul tells us through 1 Corinthians 5 and some other places throughout Scripture that if somebody claims to be a Christian and says, yeah, I know what God says, I know what the Bible says, I just don't care. I just want to live my life. Paul would say that we're not to associate, we're not to be near them. Why? Again, because it's confusing. Because the world looks in, non-Christians look in and go, you claim that Jesus changes everything, but I look at your life and you look just like me. And you're not even, what? what? Do you see the confusion that would be there? And there's another reason that we're going to talk about later for why we're called to separate. And this is difficult. And this seems like fun and ethereal until you think about what it means in our life today and for the people around us. But here's what I cannot emphasize enough this morning. While those two things are true, this is also true. We don't divide over someone trying to do the right thing and failing. We do not divide over someone trying to do the right thing and failing because if that was true, you couldn't associate with you. Just I couldn't associate with me. You couldn't associate with your pastor. Why? Because we all fail in many ways. We all stumble. That's why we need the grace of, the grace of God. And that is available for anyone upon repentance. And so uh, don't be confused. Like, I thought Bridgewater was uh, really uh, welcoming to all people. We are, absolutely. But we love you too much to leave you there. Just like I hope you would love me enough to not leave me in my own brokenness, that you would come alongside me. And we're going to talk about that. But let, let's see where Paul goes <clears throat> in the next verse here, verse 3. It says, for my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. Paul says, I'm not even there. I don't even have to see it. I've seen enough evidence to know this guy is going to be judged. And he doesn't say just in my opinion. He says in the name of Jesus, right? There's some serious judgment coming for this guy because of his behavior. And you have to ask the question, and you should be asking the question, well, doesn't the Bible say don't judge? Right? I mean, even like, come on, seriously, Matt. Jesus said don't judge. And you're referring to Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. <clears throat> do not judge or you too will be judged, right? This is even, this is everybody's favorite verse right now. This is non-Christians, like they don't even know the Bible or believe in the Bible, but they know this verse, right? You try to have a conversation with somebody dealing with their sin, what, what's the first thing they're gonna do? Quote Matthew 7 verse one to you. Okay, yes, Jesus is talking about not being a judgmental person, but you have to understand the context in which Jesus said this because um, if you just read verse one, you've missed the whole point of what Jesus is trying to articulate around judgment. Verse two, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, right? Important. If you are a judgmental person, the, the judgment on you will be difficult. If you are a person who shows grace and empathy, it says it, it will be rewarded back to you. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Verse three. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Verse four. How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye? Verse five. You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's 
eye. Now we read that and we have read that and we say, okay, then because I know there's a plank in my own eye and any self-aware person would probably readily admit they have failures, I can't have a conversation there. And that's not what he says. He says, first, deal with your sin. First, take care of, make sure your heart is pure in this area. Make sure there's no offense in you in this area and then leave the other person alone. No. He says, deal with yourself so you can see clearly, see yourself in light of the gospel, see yourself in light of the cross so that you can go to the person and help them not be blinded by sin. Do you see that? He doesn't say don't deal with it. He says, deal with yourself first. And when you do that, you'll understand and experience the grace of God in a way that makes you approach that conversation out of the grace of Jesus, not out of judgment. And that's the point Jesus was communicating, that we would, when we have these conversations, do it from the position of humility, but also out of love for the person across the table from us. So here's what Paul says to do with the guy. It gets intense. He says, so when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, you read this and maybe if you have a weird imagination like mine, you go, assembled, hand him over to Satan. What is it? We're supposed to like put on robes and like make a dark circle and like invite the demons to come take this man and say we hand him over, right? Like, Maybe my mind's just weird. Anyway, that's not what it means. Don't do that. It's not at all what it means. You'll never see us do that. What he means is this. The world belongs to Satan. Satan has rule and reign. He's the, he's the prince of power of the air. He has some dominion here that God has given him, which is why you feel all the brokenness around us. Why do we see the brokenness around us? Because God hasn't put the final squash on Satan yet. It's coming. It's coming soon, I hope. But he says if somebody's acting as if they're in more alignment with Satan than they are with Jesus, then treat them as if they belong to him. Treat them as if they belong to the world and not to Jesus. He says, hand them over to their ways, which is what you see, Romans chapter one, that God did with all humanity, that we wanted sin so badly that God said, okay, here it is. You want it that bad? Here it is. And that is destructive. And uh, I pray that God would never do that to me. Pray that God would never do that to any of us, that he would give me what I really wanted because what I really wanted in my sinful nature will destroy me. What you really want in your sinful nature will destroy you. It's the grace of God that keeps us from that. And he says, hand that man over. Treat him as if he's a non-believer. And it's really interesting because Jesus says the same exact thing. Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 is dealing what you do or talking about what you deal with with controversy or discipline. And at the end of it, he says, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen, even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And he's talking about a believer who will not repent. He's not talking about a non-Christian. He's talking about a believer or somebody who claims to be a believer who will not repent. Treat them as if they're a pagan or a tax collector. Treat them as if they're a non-Christian. Now, here's where this conversation has gotten incredibly sideways and I think um, has the opportunity to get sideways even now. How did Jesus treat tax collectors and pagans? He sat with them. He had dinner with them. He, he talked with them. He spoke truth to them. He was gracious to them. Why? Because he understood they didn't know salvation. They didn't understand the love of God. And so he approached them and pursued them in a way that they might find truth, that they might find freedom from their sin. He didn't expect that they already had it. 
And what can be dangerous is when we talk with somebody who, you know, has gone to church their whole life, so we assume they're a Christian, but their life looks totally like the world that we just go, well, yeah, but they're a Christian. And, and Paul and Jesus would say, don't assume that. If the behavior of their life says no, then how about you start sharing the gospel with them? How about you have them over for dinner and talk about how the love of Jesus changes everything? Because you might be surprised what they don't actually know. And this is where sometimes we miss it. Because we think, oh, well, you know, the world, these are the people we shouldn't associate. So we cast them off. No, 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 no. You've missed what Paul said in verse 5. Let's read it. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. The destruction of the flesh doesn't mean his physical death. The flesh is referring to our sinful nature as opposed to the spirit, which is where God has given us life. He says, would you allow him to feel the weight and consequences of his choices that the sin in him would be destroyed? Why? So that he might be saved. Let's, let's stay up there. So that he might be saved. Do you catch that? He says, have hard conversations now to spare someone from really painful consequences later. Let me say that again. We have hard conversations now so that we can spare people from really hard consequences later. And that is the purpose of this conversation. This is kind of the, the summarization of this sermon. It's this. The purpose of church discipline is restoration, not punishment. The purpose of church discipline is restoration, not punishment. It can feel like punishment in the morning, in the moment, in the same way it feels like punishment when you ground your kid for destructive behavior. It is not because you hate them, it's because you love them, and you know if they go down that path, it will ultimately lead to full destruction. Would I put the guardrails in to protect you from yourself? And for most of you, um, unless God has called you to be a pastor or an elder, you'll never have to worry about this. This is a, a fun job for those of us that God has called to um, church leadership, and it's awful, but it's right. Why? Because we love people. Now, you never hear us talk about this, and uh, it's not because it doesn't happen. In fact, I'm dealing with a couple situations right now. You don't hear about it because I don't need to shame anybody. I, I, the, the, the circle of the offense is where the circle of the conversation should stay. So, I, I do that, and I believe the scriptures call us to that because I'm not here to shame anybody into anything. I'm here for restoration. And if that circle can stay small and restoration can happen in there, you're none the wiser, and glory to God, they're restored. Why? Because I know people are petty, and opinions are hard to change of people. And so we protect that. It happens, and ultimately it's in hope of restoration for the people that we have these conversations with. Here's what Paul said in Galatians chapter 6. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person, say it with me, gently. gently. It doesn't mean we don't do it. It just means when we do it, we do it gently. We do it in the way that we would want somebody to do it with us. Here's kind of the summary, I think, of this whole section for us this morning, and it's this. A God-honoring church, let's go and throw this up there. A God-honoring church can't have Christians that live however they want and pretend like everything is okay. If we want to be a church that has God's blessing, that is seeing God move, we can't just live however we want. Why? Because it doesn't honor God, because he is a holy God. And two, it's really confusing to the world around us. 
It's really confusing to non-Christians. And, and Paul says, if you want to have an impact in your community, your lifestyle ought to match the way of Jesus. Imperfectly so, sure. That's why repentance and confession is so important. And that's why even when we offend people, going back and saying, hey, I'm sorry, would you forgive me, is so important. Why? Because it says, I don't have it all together, but I serve the God who does. <laughs> all right? And that's what he is getting at here. We don't have to, but we can't deny that we need his grace. Maybe you're here and you go, wow, I really picked an awesome first week to come here. <laughs> Second week to come here. I came here because I thought Bridgewater was loving. We are. We absolutely are. We, we love that you're here. We, we say all the time, come as you are. And we just love you too much to leave you there. Right there. All of that is true. And it's just a misunderstanding of what love means that would cause you to think otherwise. Here's what I mean. It's never loving to overlook a Christian's self-destructive behavior. It's never loving to overlook a Christian's self-destructive behavior. See, we're so, we're so like leery of making judgments, but you make judgments all the time. Our judicial system requires you to make judgments, right? Let's, let's bring this home for you. Let's say later today you're standing at your door and let's imagine you have a 12-year-old son. And the local drug dealer opens up the door and says, um, hey, I'd like to hang out with your son tonight. I'll bring him home around 2 a.m. You cool with that? No, like hard no. If that's a yes, you and I are having a conversation later, okay? <laughs> What'd you do? You looked at behavior, you looked at fruit, and you made a judgment call. Does that mean you don't love the man? No, it means you love the man and you love your son. And so you make a judgment call. Those of you with daughters or daughters in dating ages, you make judgments all the time. Daddy, I want to bring somebody home. All right, we'll see about that. Might come once, might not come again, right? Like, <laughs> what are you doing? You're judging behavior. Why? Because I love you enough to protect you from what you can't see yet. And that's exactly what we're talking about here with this point. That there are people in your life who are headed towards destruction. There are people that I know and love who are headed towards harmful places. And it would be unloving for me to look at somebody running towards a cliff and I have every opportunity to stand in the way and say, hey, 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 Whoa, this is going to end really badly. Would you heed wisdom and would you turn? And for them to do whatever they want with that is one thing. But it's a totally another thing, different thing for me to see all that and go, see how this one ends. I don't love them. I love me and I love my comfort, if that's the case. If I loved them, I'd say, whoa, whoa, whoa. hey, where are you going? So Paul says, or excuse me, James says in James chapter 5. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back. Next verse. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. I need this, you need this. We all need these guardrails in our life. And as weird as it sounds, church discipline, as we see it in scripture, is actually a safety net for you. And it's a safety net for me. That God would, would hedge us in around people who love us and can see things that we can't necessarily see on our own. Paul says this is a big problem that they deal with. And he's going to talk about it in verse 6. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. 
What he means is um, there's sin in the camp. And sin is uh, um, an idea for leaven, or excuse me, leaven is an idea for sin um, that Jesus used a lot. And basically leaven in the, the dough would get into the whole batch. You couldn't just isolate it to hear it got through everything. And he says, if you let this sin go unchecked, it will get into everything. The, the lackadaisical attitude towards sin will eventually infect the entire camp. And he says, that's not you. You are new. You have been remade. Why? For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread, leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And his point is simply this. Jesus died so that sin didn't have authority in your life anymore. Jesus went to the cross and paid the price so that sin didn't tell you where to go anymore. Jesus went to the cross so that the pain in your life wasn't going to be controlled by sin anymore. So live differently is, is basically his whole point. And he said, if you don't take this seriously, it's going to leak into every part of your life. So as we, I, I want to be helpful for you. Obviously, like I said, you're not going to be... Um, enacting church discipline, but you are going to have conversations with people about sin and about things. And so here's a couple things I want you to do. I want you to realize that Paul just took this back to the gospel. That everything comes back to the gospel. That Jesus changes everything. So would you, like we said in, in week, week three, would you filter everything through the cross? And so if there's somebody in your life who is a believer or claims to be a believer who you're not quite sure of their behavior, take them back through the filter of week three, which was a cross-centered life. Go ahead and throw this up there. Are they running to the cross when they sin? Not, not if they sin, they will sin, we all sin. Are they running to the cross? Are they coming and saying, Lord, forgive me, I've messed up, I need your help, I need your grace, would you restore me? Are they saying that? Or are they like this man saying, I don't, I don't need to repent for that, I'm good. God understands. Okay, next question. Are they motivated by the cross and how they live? Is it changing anything? Are they wanting to make changes in their life? Well, I, you know, I messed up, but you know, I got this one covered. Or messed up and I need help. I need accountability in my life. I need, I need some change and I, I need help. Right? Well, there's a different attitude there. This man did not have that. And it's a message of their life about the cross. When they look in on their life, is Jesus clearly seen? Or is it hard to tell based on their behavior and not matching their words? Those are, those are some filters for us. And, and here's what I can't stress enough. And Paul's about to try to make this distinction is this is a message for Christians about Christians. This is not a message for Christians about non-Christians. This is a message for Christians about Christians, which is the confusion Paul had and the confusion many can have to verse nine. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you should have you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, or greedy, an idolater, or slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such people. He says, you misunderstood me. You, you thought when I said this, that like you had to go be a monk and live in total isolation and cut off the world. And so often we think as Christians, it's our job just to stay uncontaminated from the world. But the reality is, you're there too, so it's contaminated, right? He says, it's not that. I'm talking about is hanging out with people who claim to be followers of Jesus but refuse to repent. He's not talking about people who struggle in these areas. He's saying, I follow Jesus and I love my sin. That's not, he's saying is that person shouldn't be around them, shouldn't spend a lot of time with them. Why? Because one, 
it'll taint your view of sin, most likely. You may become compromised. But two, it'll be a confusing message for the world around us. Paul concludes the section with this. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. Paul concludes that section by basically saying, listen, God will take care of those who don't follow Jesus. And hopefully what, what that means is they'll understand their need for repentance and fall into his grace and be restored. But, but God will deal with those. He says, you inside of the church, us inside of the church, stop pointing fingers out there and start dealing with what's in here first. Like we, we seem so shocked at the world's behavior. Why would it surprise us? They don't know Jesus. They're being led into the way of sin and the world around them. We know different. Why? Because Christ has shown us. So we ought to be different. Paul says, we'll deal with them out there. Let's deal with here first. Did you see that? He says, judge. Make judgments. Now, as we kind of wrap up our conversation today, and you're really, really wishing you were in kids' ministry this morning, I know. Um, I wish I was in kids' ministry this morning. Uh, there's a couple things I want to say that I want to make sure we don't miss as we get out of this passage. Here's the first one. Too many churches ignore the blatant sin of Christians. Too many churches ignore the blatant sin of Christians. Now, I'm not saying that we need to grab our ruler sticks and come around and smack the back of everybody's hand. What I'm saying is we know that there's sin, that people are headed towards destruction, and we just don't want to deal with it. And I just don't want to go there, right? And I think one of the primary ways that this has been um, shown is that we're not willing, or churches have not always been willing to deal with the sin of leaders, right? This isn't just an out there conversation. This is a toward leaders conversation. And we've watched over the last several years the destruction that has been brought to the reputation of Christ because somebody wasn't willing to have a hard conversation about a leader's behavior before it got bad. Oh, well, we know them. Oh, well, they just had a bad day. Oh, well, no. We have watched what has happened when we weren't willing to have the hard conversations and now there's hard consequences. Next one is that too many Christians ignore the blatant sin of other Christians. It's very easy for us to look at our friends and just give them a pass because they're our friends and it's awkward and I know I have my stuff and they have their stuff so we just all have our stuff. But you don't have to. Christ died so that we don't have to have that stuff. We can be set free. Galatians, for Christ has set us free, therefore be free. We're willing to have these important conversations. The third thing, too many Christians think it's our job to avoid non-Christians, right? We just create these huddles and these bubbles where we just hang out with people who think like us, act like us, and that's the total opposite of what the church has been called to do. The church has been called to go into dark places to be the light in those places, the church has been called to step into the mess of the world to bring hope, to bring change, to bring restoration that Jesus brings. The only time scripture gives us permission to avoid that is if you're too weak to not be pulled back in. If that area would be too tempting for you that you'd end up struggling with sin or walking away, that's the only time we're given an exception. We aren't told to create these safe huddles. We're not told to go into the mess and be just like the mess either. We're told to go into the mess and bring the change of Jesus. And the last one is this. Too many Christians judge non-Christians by Christian standards. If you could let your non-Christian friends off of the standards, I bet you your opportunity to share the gospel would skyrocket. 
I'm not surprised, and it actually bothers me when I'm around people who are non-Christians and they're just cussing up a storm and they find out I'm a pastor and all of a sudden they stop cussing. <laughs> I'm not 12. It's not the first time I've ever heard the word, all right? I understand that you don't know Jesus. I understand that before I knew Jesus, I was held captive to the things around me. I didn't know any better. The world doesn't know any better. Would we take them off of that standard, the same standard God took you off of before you came to faith in him, would you walk in that grace and say, man, I know you don't get this, but let me tell you about a Jesus who changes everything. And this whole conversation is to Christians, and if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're like, these people are crazy. Yeah, we are, but for different reasons. Okay. But I want to be explicitly clear this morning. The way into faith in Christ is not through moralism. It's not through hoop jumping. It's not through perfect behavior. It is by faith through Christ on his sacrifice alone. That wherever you are, wherever you've been, the only way you get in is because Jesus came in and paid a debt you could never pay. But what that means for us as Christians is when that debt is paid, I don't have to put myself back in jail to sin every time I feel like it. That Christ defeated that power so I could live free. And so for you, you won't get free unless you come to Jesus. And Jesus does set you free. And it's wonderful, wonderful news. So here, here's our closing thoughts for you this morning. Some, some takeaways. What are you supposed to do with a sermon like this? Find a new church. No, that's not the answer. All right. We hope you come back next week. I think for some of us, the first question is the question I posed at the very beginning. Is this authority in your life or are you authority in your life? Who holds the keys? And can I warn you that if you hold the keys, it won't end well. Because you'll pick and you'll choose and you'll just go your own way. I need this to be my guardrails. You need this to be your guardrails. I know there's things in here you don't like. Sure, there's things in here I don't like either. Why? Because I'm still a sinner who doesn't have it figured out, but these help correct me. So for you, maybe that, that's your takeaway today. Would you submit yourself to the authority of the word of God in your life? Maybe for you, as you've listened to this, God has brought to mind some sin in your own life that it's time to deal with some sin you've been defending, some habit you've been justifying, um, maybe it's time to just bring that into the light. Why? Because there's freedom and forgiveness there. Because it doesn't have to own you. You don't have to defend it anymore. Why? Because Christ already paid for it. You can be free. And on the other side of that is joy and life abundant. John 10.10 10 says, the enemy has come only to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you may have life and life abundant. I know the sin seems promising, but it, it only ends in destruction. Maybe for you, you need to have a conversation with a brother or sister in Christ. Hey, I've, I've noticed some behavior that doesn't seem to line up with what you say you believe. Can we talk about that? You have a conversation? I want to help you. How can I stand in the gap for you? How can I help you defeat this? It's a very different conversation than, hey, what are you doing? We approach it with grace. Maybe for you, and this is, was my application for this week, um, I had to apologize to a leader probably about 10 years ago or so, I was young and dumb and more young and dumb than I am now, I guess. Um, I was in a, in a ministry setting and there was some discipline that had to be put in place on two individuals. And I just didn't know enough of the situation. They were protecting me from some of the details. 
And I went after these leaders and just said, ah, oh, you're being ignorant, um, you're, you're being bigoted, which is some of the worst labels you can ever give somebody today, um, which is why many people avoid these passages because you'll very easily get that label if you do this. Anyway, um, I had apologized to them, man, probably three years after the event. God just kind of put it on my heart again to apologize to them again from just a different standpoint, having had to walk through this on the other side. So um, the day I was going to reach out to them, oddly enough, they messaged me. Um, I said, well, now I definitely can't get out of this apology. Um, <clears throat> not that I was going to, but I, I said, hey, I just I wanted to apologize again for how I handled that. Um, you were totally in the right. I, I've, seen how you, I, I've seen scripture. You handled this biblically. And I'm sorry for giving you a hard time and not not understanding this. And they said, you know, it's really interesting that you would message me because you already apologized to me once and we were totally good. We're good. We have a great relationship now. She said, but the individual who we put under discipline just messaged me a month ago and just absolutely shredded me and berated me for how I did all this wrong. And she said, I've been sitting here wondering for the last month, did this decision I made 10 years ago, was I right or was I wrong? And uh, to get your message that this was right, I did this right. It just it brought such encouragement to me, which I say all that to say, if you need to apologize to somebody, don't just apologize in your head. You never know what's going on the other side of that conversation. So, so have those apologies. So for me, that's my takeaway this week is I had to, I had to have that conversation to let somebody um, have some forgiveness in my life there. So here's the end of the matter for us. Your life will be determined largely by how you choose to handle your sin. The direction of your future, the direction of your kids, the direction of your kids' kids will largely be determined by whether you will confess or whether you will defend. And I would want for you the freedom that Christ offers, which is that when you confess, it's gone. You don't have to be your own lawyer anymore. You don't have to be your own judge, jury. You just, it's gone. As we sang earlier, that now my sin is dead and gone. Would you want that for your own life and would you want that for the lives of people around you? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. And frankly, God, I don't have enough love in me to love you as I ought to love you, but you give me the strength to do it. God, I, I find this war within me, and it's talked about in Romans, of just this desire to do right and then finding myself not doing what I know is right. And God, I'm sure there are many in here today who can relate to that, who want to be different and want to be further along than they are. Would we fall upon your grace this morning? We don't have the power to change us, God, but we want, we want to choose you because you have the power to change us. Is any of us here today who are um, withholding this and not walking in confession and repentance, God, I pray that you would move in our hearts to do that. I pray that as a church, God, we would never lose our compassion. We would never lose our grace. We would never lose our empathy, but we would also never lose our desire to honor you. And we can do both of those at the same time if you give us the strength to do it. Pray that as a church, our, the message of our lives would be clear to the world around us, that you are a God who changes everything. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.